This is the Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with new and archive interviews from the Probabilities and Bookwaves Artwaves programs on KPFA-FM and Pacifica Syndication. Robert Stone, who died on January 10, 2015, at the age of 77, won the National Book Award in 1975 for his novel Dog Soldiers and was a finalist four other times. He was also twice a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His novels include A Flag for Sunrise, set in war-torn Central America, and Damascus Gate, set in Jerusalem. I interviewed Robert Stone twice, first for his novel Bay of Souls, in which we also talked about Flag for Sunrise and Damascus Gate, that was in 2003, and then again on January 25, 2007, for his memoir, Prime Green, Remembering the Sixties, which we hear now. This is your first nonfiction book, huh? Yes, it is. What prompted you to write about your life in the 60s at this particular time? It was due, so I took some time away from fiction, which is my first love, and I thought I would try to get this down, maybe so I'd remember. Ken Kesey said about you, apparently, back then, Robert Stone is a professional paranoid, someone who sees sinister forces behind every Oreo cookie. Is that a way to describe you during the 60s? It doesn't appear that way in your book. Ken had a, a, a tendency to pursue a vision to the extreme. That was Kesey. So I think he constructed me at that moment into whatever sort of came into his head about me at any given moment. I don't know. I must have expressed some skepticism about one of his enterprises. <laughs> so he, he sort of construed that and elaborated on it. There was that paranoia because of what the U.S. was doing. Well, yes. I mean, they, the government started this gigantic and terrible and tragic game of cops and robbers that deeply criminalized any kind of consciousness-enhancing or consciousness-altering drug. It was you know, part of a hype to advance the cause of bureaucrats and also a media hype to criminalize drug use like that. Uh, it was a complete distortion of the purpose of the Harrison Act that was the federal statute against drugs that was meant to protect people from patent medicines that were addictive, and it was turned into this uh, criminalization of, of everything. It was terrible, and of course it goes on today. Robert Stone, the book begins with your sojourn in the Navy in 1957. Why did you choose to start it at that point rather than either earlier or a little later? Because the section of my life that I'm recalling, invoking in Prime Green, really began in my last years in the Navy. And the Antarctic trip, I kind of remember that as the beginning of my adult life. And I have to say I had a pretty good time in the Navy. I was very young. When I went in, I was 17, so I was used to being pushed around by adults. So I uh, adapted pretty well, and I ended up having a pretty good time. And I remember that Antarctic trip as an adventure and as something that I, I really enjoyed. And as, as I say, as the beginning of my adult life. Did you uh, take notes? Did you have a diary? Or was all of this just coming from your memory? It's coming from my memory. I never took notes. I never had the discipline to keep it any kind of journal. You know, in a way, this is about memory, I think. Sometimes I called people up to see if their recollection of something was the same as mine. It's funny. I've heard from a number of shipmates of mine on the USS Ornem 
after the book came out, after the sections were in the New Yorker, and it, which is great. Did they have the same memories? Yes. As a matter of fact, I was reminded of a couple of great things that happened on the Arneb in the course of our voyage. One old shipmate of mine who uh, just reminded me of a whole lot of things actually set down things that had happened, which actually were worth recounting now that I think of them. There was a a sojourn in South Africa, Mm. which was pretty horrifying. Well, I mean, South Africa was pretty horrifying in the ripest days of apartheid. I ought to have not gone ashore, but I I couldn't, you know, and just out of solidarity, but I I couldn't resist going and, and seeing it. But it was pretty dreadful for the black sailors on my ship. And, you know, we also had a number of uh, Filipino sailors who were just beginning to, the Navy was just beginning to put them into rates other than steward. You know, the ship had gone to Cape Town the year before, and in Cape Town the uh, Filipinos were consigned to the one degree of segregation or, or another. In Durban, where I was, they weren't. What happened to the black sailors when they went over was they were kind of bussed to one of the Zulu locations outside of town, Durban being predominantly Zulu area, now called uh, Natal, KwaZulu. But anyway, they went out to the locations. They had more money and more attraction to the local women than, than anybody else, than the locals did. So they were they were attacked. They were knifed. They were robbed. It was a very bad scene. And so they went over once and they didn't, they didn't go over again. Yet another failure of mine to uh, to grasp the right thing to do. And, and so we, we went over. We called up some young women from the University of Natal. We, we went out. And, of course, we had our misadventure with the, uh, with the rickshaw that's in the book. And then you got out of the Navy. Had there been any thought in your head about being a writer? Yes. I mean, I read all the time. I was very intoxicated by the idea of the life of a writer. Of course, we were all tremendously under the influence of Hemingway, who, as as we now can see, was the first celebrity writer. His myth was, you know, all pervasive, and he bestrode the world of letters at that time. So I thought of it, but I never really expected that I would get to be a professional novelist. I hope to be maybe a journalist. That was about as, as lofty an aspiration as I could summon at that time. You went back to New York, where you had grown up, and wound up getting married and moving to New Orleans. Mm. New Orleans, up until last year, was one place. New Orleans is very different today. What are your thoughts on what's happened to New Orleans and the future? I would gather you probably haven't been there since. I haven't been there since. I haven't been there in a while. Well, the New Orleans I remember, I mean, we were very, very poor and it was hard to get work. We were saved by the census in 1960. If we hadn't gotten that that work, both my wife and I, I don't know where we'd have ended up. You know, I remember its sweet side. We read poetry to jazz in a in a bar down in the quarter, but it was rough. But even then, especially taking the census, we we could see the intense poverty that more intense and more deprived than any poverty I think in any urban area of America. I mean, that was just hundreds and hundreds of people living on the in the Illinois Central. They weren't exactly shanty towns, but they were deteriorated housing. The census form always gives you a uh, a list of descriptions to check out on the on the state of the house that you're censusing and it was all deteriorating and we were walking into people's houses, having them count their family members and so forth. 
It was impressive, the degree of, of poverty. The, the next time I was back, I went back to cover the uh, 88 Republican convention. The poverty was far worse. And ironically, after legal desegregation, the city became, in effect, much more segregated because of, of white flight. And many, many of the whites in New Orleans, who had always lived in pretty close proximity to, uh, you know, to African-Americans, moved out to the suburbs. And one of the suburbs sent uh, David Duke, the Klansman, to the, uh, to the state house. So it was bad then, and obviously it's a lot worse now. I mean, I think it has about half the population. It's the cultural base of the city, in a way, just removed, as I understand it. What the government did, the American government, is yet another criminal act. Well, that Bush is a little bit short of sympathetic imagination, you might say. <laughs> Robert Stone, you wound up in uh, the Bay Area, particularly in uh, the Santa Cruz Mountains, though you were in San Francisco for a while? We were in San Francisco, my wife and I, just before the I had a, I had a Stegner Fellowship at Stanford. The summer before that started, uh, we were living on uh, Filbert Street and on Russian Hill, which was affordable in those days. I had a job on a shirt factory in a shirt factory on Howard Street, and my wife worked nights for the Bank of America doing um, what was then called key punching, which kind of proto-computer work. So we did live in San Francisco over that summer. Uh, Alcatraz, I remember, was, was still a prison. I remember the, uh, the foghorn out there and the, the lights. San Francisco then was a really a little pearl of a city. Coit Tower was one of the highest things around. Of course, maybe nostalgia improves and memory improves the good things, but uh, we really enjoyed it. It was great to be out of New York and to be in California, which was a strange world, a different culture, it seemed. Was North Beach happening then, or was that even before? North Beach was happening. It probably was in decline uh, by 1962, which is when we got there. But but the scene was in North Beach. Uh, Haight-Ashbury was still sort of a working-class neighborhood at that point. There weren't a lot of young people or too many bohemians living there. I, I think there was probably a base, but Haight-Ashbury was not happening in 1962. And you wound up, uh, of course, on the um, peninsula, which at that point was a lot of groves. And trees. Yes, it was uh, walnut groves and peaches. I mean, where all Silicon Valley is now, Hereford's grazing. Many, many very inexpensive little bungalows that rented for a few hundred dollars. Uh, quite different from the way it is now. And of course, I remembered as you know, as, as a kind of lost paradise, the way one will think back on the landscapes of youth. And when you finally went to Stanford. That's when you began meeting the people who would become the core of what they later called the bus. Yeah. I mean, Kerouac, Kesey, all of those folks. I'd seen Kerouac around in New York quite a bit and, and Ginsburg too. But, you know, they were sort of famous people. And, you know, I was kind of a, a copy boy in the Daily News who liked to hang out in those places out in Palo Alto. I got to know more kindred spirits than I had ever run into in, in one place before. We were smoking dope. I think we got that from the jazz musicians because music was tremendously important. We became very fond of each other and very perhaps too pleased with ourselves. But I, don't know, I think we all had come from different directions, different conditions of life, and we suddenly found each other, and it was wonderful. We kind of turned into this soup. Do you remember <laughs> the first time you smoked pot? Yes. I had seen it smoked when I was in high school, but then it was associated with gangs and uh, fighting with car antennas and so forth. So I, 
I didn't much go near it. And of course, when I was in the Navy, you'd, you thought you'd be locked down forever in a fortress if you ever went near it. But the first time I smoked dope was sometime about 1958. And as I remember, I took a uh, what we used to call a straight, that is a regular cigarette, and I took it off the filter and I rolled the tobacco out of it, filled it with dope, and smoked it that way. And I went through the sort of, oh, I don't feel anything, and then suddenly I'm paranoid, everybody's putting me on. I mean, that, I had a paranoid moment there. But, you know, finally learned to use it. I, one of the sweet moments I remember from uh, smoking dope in the 50s was listening to uh, John Coltrane playing My Favorite Things, somebody's record somewhere. Uh, you wound up, of course, taking LSD and mescaline. I guess mescaline uh, peyote came first. Yeah. And I encountered uh, Coltrane's music again, this time at the uh, place on Broadway, San Francisco, the, uh, what was the Jazz Gallery. That was Coltrane in person. I think Miles Davis was playing with him at that time. I had this attack of synesthesia, very high on uh, on peyote, and suddenly I began to see the music, see the brass in bursts of red ribbon and the bass line in waves of jagged frost. And I have to tell you, it was altogether too much for me. So I fled with my wife and uh, a friend of ours. We went outside, and of course, we turned the corner, and there was Chinatown with all the kind of clunky, clunky exoticism. <laughs> so it was an overwhelming experience, you might say. I mean, I wish it was really a waste of Coltrane and of an <laughs> opportunity to hear Coltrane, but we were, we were overcome by our uh, altered state. I had bought peyote, I have to say, in New York in 58, 59. It was sold by a man who ran a cafe on East 6th Street between 1st and A, or maybe East 4th Street. He was a follower of Ayn Rand, and uh, his cafe was indicated by a dollar sign, the symbol of the Ayn Rand movement. He got uh, peyote from a cactus ranch in Texas and sold it. So we were always doing things like putting it in a wearing blender and trying to escape the dreadful taste. Some of the people that you knew during that period. Now, Kerouac, when did you first meet Kerouac or talk to Kerouac? The first time I actually had a conversation with Kerouac, unfortunately, this would have been about 64. Kerouac was already at that point disappearing into alcohol and bitterness and anger. The worst of him was emerging. I never saw him at his best. I think he was a very emotional, sensitive person and... People sometimes forget how the Beats were subject to intense ridicule by feature writers in the press. They were just victimized as far as their reputations went in public. I mean, we think, you know, we had it hard in our generation, but the Beats were really attacked, mocked, and jeered at. So that in the larger world, Kerouac was never really taken as seriously as, you know, as, as he thought he should have been. That was true of Ginsburg, too. I mean, to the extent that he was known outside the world of poetry. In the world of poetry, in the academic world of literature, he was, of course, a, a bull in a china shop. He sort of rang everybody's bells. But in the, in the greater world outside, people would invent stories. Feature writers of the time, they would just completely invent stories about these people that never happened. I remember Edith Sitwell, the English poet, was supposed to have uttered this crisp English put-down of, of Ginsburg at one point. So she had to write to the press to say that the anecdote about her putting Ginsburg down in some condescending way was untrue, that she thought his poetry was good and she liked him. So I, this furthered Kerouac's bitterness. And it was bitter. It was, uh, I mean, 
One of the things I remember from our conversation was his his resentment. This was when the bus arrived in New York, and it kind of had arrived at my apartment. We sort of drove around New York. We finally ended up at this party. Ginsburg was there. I didn't talk to him too much. I'd talked to him a couple of times before. But Kerouac was just, he was really, really uh, angry at seeing Neil Cassidy, especially, who had driven the bus, seeing Cassidy having fallen into the, under the influence of, of these young, vastly energetic California people who he referred to as surfers. I think he really was kind of jealous of uh, Cassidy's adherence to the Keezy gang because he had really idealized and I remember asking him for cigarettes. He wouldn't give me one because I had this sordid kind of selfishness that emerged when he was drunk. You know, he wouldn't buy you a drink. He wouldn't give you a cigarette. I mean, it was a very superficial part of him, but he was sliding into that awful right-wing anti-Semitic trip. He went on and, you know, subjecting Ginsburg to all kinds of things. But Ginsburg, who had certainly a transcendent side, was kind of above all that. And was very sweet about it. You know, you didn't want to hang much around Kerouac. If you'd known him when, that was one thing. But he was he was not a pleasant experience. Cassidy, uh, you, you keep mentioning in Prime Green that Cassidy was exactly as he is pointed out to be. This was the guy, and there's nobody else on the planet like Neil Cassidy. That was true. When I was still in the Navy, I had read On the Road, which my mother sent me. The character of Dean Moriarty. Dean Moriarty, yeah. yeah. Reading on the road, you think, well, nobody could ever have talked like uh, Dean Moriarty. But uh, when you met Cassidy, you saw that Kerouac had definitely recorded something real. He was kind of unbelievable. Although I have to say that at the time I knew him, he too was disappearing into his drug. With Kerouac, it had been alcohol. And with uh, with Neil, it was speed. I tell this story often, but uh, I mean, down in Mexico, which is where I knew him in Manzanillo, he had this... Uh, annoying habit of putting acid in everybody's drink or in everybody's food. Because he was so he was so deep into speed, he, he never ate and he never slept and he never shut up. He had a parrot. The parrot was called Rubiaco. And the parrot spent so much time with Neil that when you'd walk into a room, this voice would say, the last time I was in Denver, man. And you could never tell whether it was Neil or the parrot. And the, the, I mean, the kicker to that was years later, we, we were up at Kesey's. My wife and I were sleeping in a loft up there, and I woke up, and I saw this evil bird on my chest. And it was Rubiaco, and Rubiaco said, the last time I was in Denver, sort of his the last shard of Neil in the universe years after he was gone. You're listening to an interview with Robert Stone, whose latest book is Prime Green, Remembering the 60s. Now, when you first met the members of the Grateful Dead, they were still at the SF Conservatory of Music? First time I, I met them, they were commuting to the San Francisco Conservatory. And as I remember them, they, they were very, uh, as we used to say, straight individuals with suits and ties. And the band that I mostly hung with was a band called the Anonymous Artists of America, and I think were an influence on the dead. And the dead were playing first in a place in Palo Alto called uh, St. Michael's Alley. And they began to hang out with Kesey, and they got turned on. I didn't know whether it was, you know, by him. And, uh, of course, they transmogrified into uh, the dead that we know. Did you know Garcia particularly? I, kn- I knew him slightly. I mean, I was a friend of Carolyn Adams, who was known as Mountain Girl, who married in some fashion Jerry later on. So I would see him from time to time. I was not a friend of his. I was just reminiscing about the music of those days. I I saw John Dunsmore, the drummer for The Doors, down in L.A. When I was down there, we were talking about 
the musical past, you know, which was so important. We still hear a lot of that music, and a lot of today's bands draw from that. Oh, they were the best. I mean, the Dead and the Doors were just, uh, you know, I think everybody remembers what they were doing at a given time when they were listening to, you know, one piece of music or another. They, They really were the background for so much. The 60s itself today, here we are 40 years later, and those of us who were, I guess, fortunate enough to experience it from within rather than those people looking at it and clucking and putting their noses in the air, we see it in a certain way. The parallels between today and then are pretty striking. Uh, We've got a war going on now, and it seems as if those forces that were in control then, in fact, some of the same people perhaps, are in control again. It's awful how we don't seem to be able to uh, uh, make use of any institutional memory. In this case, I mean, there are many differences, and maybe the differences, to me anyway, uh, seem more uh, more striking. In a way, I can excuse, in retrospect, I can excuse the beginnings of the Vietnam War because of the idea that communism had to be contained. And I, I really didn't have a lot of illusions about communism. I had been in Budapest in 1964, and seeing that Orwellian world that they had imposed on Eastern Europe, I was not, uh, you know, I was not a friend of the CP. I mean, I can understand the instincts of the cold warriors, many of whom had lived through the late 30s and seen, you know, the uh, attempted placating of Hitler and so forth to, you know, to resist this movement. However, it was overextended. I mean, Vietnam was, it was a failure to perceive that this was really not an ideological movement over there, but a national, a national movement of national liberation. And of course, the ideology over there, I mean, having, I've been there once in the 90s, uh, the ideology is disappearing, but, you know, we couldn't see what was happening. Ho Chi Minh was once asked whether Southeast Asia, as the Americans thought, was going to be, quotes, overrun. And he said, yes, it was going to be overrun by its inhabitants, which was what was going on, although we were unable to perceive this. This was, this Iraq business was a, an act of colossal arrogance by wicked, on the one hand wicked, and on the other hand foolishly naive people, all of whom informed with the arrogance of the post-Cold War power of the United States, without any sense, at least on the part of people like Bush, certainly any sense of the region or its culture or the attitudes there. You know, it was his one of his, his blind ignorant impulses, perhaps owing to the people who gave him advice, that uh, has wreaked disaster, of course, on the Iraqis. However, whether it, you know, to the degree to which it freed them from Saddam is, I guess, not debatable. It did that, but it imposed on them a terrible anarchy and uh, also a subjection to American firepower. But it also did tremendous damage to the country, which I wonder if we'll ever come back from. You know, however badly we talk of Saddam, you know, the question is, is it worse today than it was then? And the answer is yes. I think for most people in Iraq, it's worse. Part of, uh, I think, our trying to impose a different reality on the Middle East, when you, which when you think about it, is so ill-judged, uh, so, so impossible. You know, you really had to know not much about the world to imagine that such a thing could have been done. I think originally we had a bunch of Iraqis who were our creatures with whom we thought we had a coincidence of interest. We wanted to put uh, Ahmed Jalabi in power 
and it was going to be an easy thing to do, just impose them on Iraq. And of course, Chalabi turned out to be, it would seem, an Iranian agent. And (laughs) the naivete of the people who started that project to reform the Middle East is is staggering. And they got their fingers uh, banged every single try. I mean, everything they tried failed. Part of it is we need to draw the parallels before we begin to see the distinctions. And I think you're right. You know, Vietnam came out of the best and the brightest, and this seems to come out of the worst and the stupidest. (laughs) The worst and the stupidest. Well, that is an interesting contrast because I think that is certainly true. The worst and the stupidest. Robert Stone, you left the bus, as it were. You left La Honda in Santa Cruz and wound up in New York before the proverbial hit the fan uh, in terms of what happened to the counterculture long before, in fact, and you were in New York. You worked at a supermarket rag at that point. You Mm. worked at two of them. Uh, You refused to name them in the book. Is there a reason for that? I refused to name them in the book uh, or or didn't name them in the book. And however, when I published a part of this in The New Yorker, they had me name them and they actually managed to, to locate the actual tabloid stories. I mean, just in case anybody thinks I made those up, they exist online. Things I never dreamed that I would ever see again. Uh, Skydiver devoured by starving birds and all these dreadful but fortunately fictive headlines and stories that we ran. What were the names of the two magazines? Well, one of them, the first one I worked for was called The National Mirror. And that was the one that was completely phony. Completely phony. Yeah, William Kotzwinkel worked on one of those at Did one he, point, yeah. I'm not surprised. He would be He would be the writer I would pick, uh, what might have been a colleague of mine. And the other one was uh, similar to the National Enquirer. What was it? It was called Inside News, and it was run by a guy named Bob Harrison, who had gained fame as the, edi- the editor of Confidential, which was a scandal rag that ended when uh, its existence ended when various actors sued him for scurrilously libel things that he put in it. And then somebody shot him, although not fatally. So he went on to publish Inside News, which was where, uh, where I worked. What was the percentage of people who were kind of, you know, hippies like you versus sleazebags at these places? <laughs> <laughs> I hesitate to call anybody a sleazebag. No, I think we were all pilgrims you know, <laughs> in search of uh, transcendence in our way, at the, and we were seeking it in, uh, you know, a rather deformed vision of the of the world. But it was all it was all in in good fun. Were you ever just sitting around with a whole bunch of you smoking pot and and drinking and saying, "What would be the most outrageous thing we could get away with now?" That's exactly what we were saying. I mean, it was hash. Actually, we usually <laughs> saved our drinking to to off hours, although not entirely. We would smoke hash. We would come up with these ghastly headlines, which uh, we always, the, the only re- redeeming thing about them was that they, we made them up. So they reflected more on, on our depravity than on the world's. Now, you worked early on at the Daily News. That mm-hmm. was way before, right? Yeah, that was in the 50s. That was in the 50s. You never, went, you never went back to them. No, I never did. I mean, that was an experience. That was the old, dreadful, fascistoid, daily news, gum-chewing, out-of-the-side-of-the-mouth, nasty, McCarthyite daily news of the 50s, which, you know, we who worked there cultivated a, a profound hatred for our employer, and they gradually learned a hatred for us. Eventually, you wound up being a stringer in Saigon. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the last part of the book is about that. You've gone back to Vietnam yes, since. Yes, I have. I went back in the 90s. How did it relate to your memories of those earlier days? Well, Saigon seemed to me in many ways worse than it had been during the war. 
In terms of the uh, general wheeling and dealing and the crowds of foreign businessmen, I noticed that the place on uh, Tudor Street where I had seen children weaving raw silk dresses, you could order a dress or, you know, an alyai as the Vietnamese called it, and it could be done overnight by child laborers sewing away through the night to produce it. I noticed that the shop was still open and still had child laborers working through the night. I got up to Hanoi. I was sort of one of the conductors of a tour from Yale, so I had to deal with the officials. You know, we were catching a plane to Phnom Penh, and uh, I was dealing with the guy in charge of exit visas and so forth at the airport, and it was Tet. So a lot of people were flying south. They brought things like, uh, you know, peach blossoms, things that didn't grow in the south when they visited their relatives. So there was a lot of traffic in the area. And this guy, who was in charge of letting people on planes, he said, well, you know, if I'm going to let all you people on the plane, I think you should buy my father a, a couple of bottles of unblended scotch because he would really like that. And I said, you know, I'm no, I'm not going to bribe you to let these people on the plane. I mean, this is a whole bunch of people. You can't keep them off the plane. He said, oh, yes, I can. And so we finally struck a deal where on my ticket, he could buy out of his own money the bottles of unblended scotch. And he took out this huge roll of American money. He bought the stuff or, I mean, at least he bought some of it. He generally just kind of took it from the duty-free shop. That seemed to be about the level of official governance in Vietnam, post-revolutionary Vietnam. It was quite corrupt. And everybody said that. You know, some Vietnamese writers who I've known since you know, are fighting a desperate battle with the government of Vietnam to do their work and to not be imprisoned. And many of them have left for America or for Paris particularly. So, you know, it's the old, the more things change, the more they remain the same. You know, you keep wondering if there had been no Vietnam War, would things be pretty much the same way they are now anyway? Oh, yes, certainly. I mean, if we had just let the, you know, the national forces of Vietnam take over. I mean, we kept seeing the communism. Uh, we didn't seem to realize that this was, as I say, a, that it was a national revolution against foreign rule. I don't know that by any means the majority of people supported the North and the Viet Cong. I, I think that's open to question. But they managed to embody the national spirit and they managed to attract the loyalty of those who were so inclined and also to intimidate those who were not. You came back from Vietnam, Robert Stone, and that's when the book ends. Mm -hmm. But your next novel was Dog Soldiers, which was at least part of it, the beginning part, if I remember correctly, it's been a long time since I read it, it takes place there and the rest takes place kind of, I think, in Mexico. In New Mexico and, and in California. Mm -hmm. I, I, in some ways, I wish I'd, I wish I'd written a, a novel that was set entirely over there, but I didn't feel I had the right to because I wasn't there that long. But yes, I always remember writing about Saigon, and of course, you know, you get nostalgic for everything. And Saigon was, in its way, an attractive city. There weren't a lot of American troops in Saigon, uh, only the troops who were stationed around the city. Uh, they tended to keep American servicemen out of Saigon to some extent. In Prime Green, you talk about the horrors of having your first novel, Hall of Mirrors, become WUSA, W-U-S-A. Uh, when it came time to sell dog soldiers, having been burned the first time, what was your attitude and uh, what actually happened to the movie Dog Soldiers, which was eventually dumped as Who'll Stop the Rain? Yes. Uh, well, I was in London at the time. 
I went to see Carol Rice, who was the director, the, the director who wrote The Art of Film Cutting, a very esteemed director, and I, I liked him. And he wanted to direct a movie of Dog Soldiers. He asked me if I would write the script, and I declined, and he asked me again. So I found myself being lured back into the great vortex of uh, Hollywood movies, and uh, they signed Carol to direct. Nick Nolte was in it. Nick gave a wonderful performance, I think, in that movie. He really read the book uh, in a way that I think actors really read the books from, from which they're uh, creating a part. Uh, there were other great performances. Tuesday Weld, I think, was terrific, and Richard Mazur and Ray Sharkey and all these performers really, really delivered. But the movie is being squeezed by the distributing studio in terms of budget. They ended up really arguing with Carol Rice's cut. With some of the changes we had to make in the plot, I mean, were determined by budget and not by, you know, the results at all. And I quit at a certain point. And my friend Judy Roscoe sort of took over from that point. But I still have a credit because, you know, I wanted to get the Guild credit for the health benefits and everything of the Guild. The movie, certainly much better than the first one. It was not as disastrous. I didn't feel very good about it. And I really appreciate the performances that people turned in. And I give credit to Carol Rice, who, you know, I don't know how much control over the final cut he had. I'm not unhappy that the name was changed altogether, although it was a ridiculous name. So they changed it from dog soldiers to who'll stop the rain because they, I mean, and I was actually told this because women, they said, did not like dogs or soldiers. I said, that can't be true. I mean, women like dogs and soldiers, but I was overruled. (laughs) Robert Stone, in a broader sense, looking back at the 60s and today, you made mention about the fact that conformity is far more in fashion today than it was then that America is no longer regional as it was then. You talk about moralizing, but that there are no moral consciences. There was a lot of superficial moralizing going around. On the one side, we have this kind of neo-moral, pseudo-moral spirit that, for example, criticized uh, Bill Clinton for engaging in a sexual act outside of marriage. And we had all these men in government decrying it as though this was the farthest thing from anything that they might do. They were horrified that Bill Clinton would do something like he did. It was the most pathetic and disgusting spectacle of hypocrisy that one could imagine. This continues. But I have to say, even when I was teaching at Yale and I had a class read on the road, uh, what I got from the students was a great deal of moralizing, uh, tutting of the characters in On the Road, how irresponsible they were, how avoiding, how distressingly avoiding of responsibility they were, failure to uh, establish careers and cavalier behavior toward their children. Uh, It really surprised me how much the students at Yale, I mean, who one might say was an elite, didn't know about the past was impressive. It made me wonder about the people in Washington, including our most famous Yale graduate, how ill-equipped certainly the, the earlier generation was. And these, these kids had all the advantages of people going to school in the 90s, uh, and they were nothing if not highly intelligent and pretty sophisticated relatively to the rest of the country. I mean, profoundly sophisticated relative to the rest of the country. But they had interesting gaps 
in their sense of history. There's a uh, local critic named Mick LaSalle who wrote two books about pre-code Hollywood films, and he said one of the differences between films today and then, even though now we could show nudity and cursing, is that in those films, there was no moralizing. Those early pre-code films are amazing to see uh, in what they dealt with. In a way, for a while, when the code broke down in the very late 60s and early 70s, everybody welcomed this as a liberating force. But in fact, it just gave the Hollywood studios the opportunity to make bad movies about more complicated subjects. You know, in retrospect, it seemed the code was, you know, in some ways protected us from uh, more elaborate exercises in the, in the fatuous. <laughs> you make mention several times in Prime Green that we lost the culture war. You know, I think that was always inevitable to some extent. And certainly the outer shores of our vision were probably not practical. I know Kesey began to act more and more as a shaman and dancer on the storm and was able to accept the loneliness and isolation of the writer's life less and less because he was so energetic. He really wanted to perform and to be out there making things happen. And I think he, he succumbed to a, a vision at a certain point that he, uh, he might be able to change the world just with his energy and inventiveness. And of course, you know, it was part of the same old process of the impulse to turn life into art and art into life. So that was never going to happen. And a lot of what people hoped for in the 60s, what we hoped for, we couldn't make stick. But there were things that we did that have been incorporated into the culture now that kind of contradict the idea that everything, you know, went for naught in the 60s. Statutory racism, for example, was ended by people whose informing spirit was similar to that of the 60s, contributed into the making of the 60s. Even things like institutions treating people with more respect, I mean, whether it's hospitals or, or anything else, that was absorbed, and we have the advantages of that. So we have benefited by a lot of the movements of the 60s, but we're not aware of them as movements of the 60s. And uh, people who were disinclined to the adventures of that time really put the 60s down as though it contributed nothing positive, and that isn't true. Are you working on another novel now? I'm working on a book of stories right now, but I'm impatient to get back on a novel, which I had started some years ago and which I would like to finish. And I sometimes think that, uh, you know, if I'm a lot of the time, I might try to do a memoir about my earlier life, my, my childhood, which was in a way as strange as anything that happened in the 60s. You've been listening to an interview with the late novelist Robert Stone, recorded January 25th, 2007, while he was on tour for his memoir, Prime Green, Remembering the 60s. You can write to me, Richard Walensky, either at bookwaves at hotmail.com or richard at kpfa.org. You can find other Radio Walensky podcasts in the Area 941 section of kpfa.org, or you can go to bookwaves.homestead.com or richardwalensky.com for a complete listing of all digitized recordings. You can subscribe to Radio Walensky via iTunes or follow Richard Walensky Radio Shows on Facebook. Radio Walensky usually posts every week on Sundays. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky. <laughs>